Hello, and welcome to Anthropologically Speaking. I'm Katie. <laughs> and I'm Is. And today we're going to be talking to you about um, the biological profile. We are, and Isabel is, can't be with us today, um, but she's here in spirit. <laughs> she is. She's always listening, always. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a quick definition of... Um, what a biological profile is. So um, it's the estimation of sex, age, um, stature, and ancestry, um, and the documentation of pathologies like disease um, and pre- and post-mortem trauma from bone um, for the purposes of determining the cause of death um, of an individual, as well as identifying or learning um, more about an unknown individual. Um, So it's typically used... um, by forensic anthropologists, I believe. Yep, it's used by forensic anthropologists and also in case studies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can also call a biological profile an osteobiography, and that's really what it is. Like when you think of reading a biography, you're thinking of like reading the story of a person. Mm-hmm. So when you do a biological profile or an osteobiography, you're reading the story of the person's life as best as you can through their bones. And in a way, we can call that embodiment, like how their body encased and encapsulated their lived experiences for forever, for as long as the bones last. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot we can't see um, by just looking at their bones, but um, it's interesting how much we can see um, through looking just at their um skeletal remains yeah it's really cool it's definitely a privilege to be able to find stuff out about somebody like oh like they broke their leg at some point like Mm -hmm. i wonder how that affected them Mm -hmm. so um the first thing that uh biological anthropologists so it's biological anthropology again that we're talking about this week um the first thing that a biological anthropologist would do when they are doing an uh osteological profile or a biological profile is they're literally just going to look and they're going to be like what bones are here so um a lot of the times um like if you're looking at like a medical collection um like the the people their bones are going to be very well preserved if it's like a medical collection they're not going to be like stained or um broken they're going to be quite nice how they would have been in the person's body we do not get that luxury with archaeological material. So when we get archaeological material, it is very often fragmented, very, very fragmented. Mm-hmm. It's stained. It is um, often broken by different environmental processes. Um, there can be like things like roots growing in it that's etched into the bone, mm-hmm. um, stuff like that. Often the full skeleton, skeleton is not there. Um, It's just bits and pieces. And even with forensic cases, um, which are more modern, um, sometimes a lot of the the person can be missing just because um, of different taphonomic processes. So, you know, if an animal came by and kind of, like, took some of the body one way, took some of the body another way, um, you're not going to find this intact skeleton that um, you often would expect Mm -hmm. to see. One of the things that um, one of my first-year professors told me that I'll never forget is that um, like the head is just very loosely connected to your body. Like it's all tissue, like bone wise, it's, there's not a lot of connection there. So as soon as the head comes off, it becomes a ball. And when oh. the head's a ball, animals like to play with the head. Oh my gosh, Katie. That was like, 
apparently that actually happens that was oh. that was what that was what he said so that stuck That's with me <laughs> that, that yeah i thought about that for a long time after that <laughs> um that was literally what I said. He's like, the head's just another ball. And I'm oh like, oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Fun. Um, but yeah, and even in forensic cases, if the person's being moved and they had already decomposed of it, they might not find all of the um, bones. And like in archaeological cases, you're more likely to find things like long bones. So long mm-hmm. bones are exactly what you'd think of. It's like the long bones that make up like your arms and your legs, for example. Mm-hmm. But you're very like you're not going to find things necessarily like the distal so the tips of your fingers distal phalanges um or ossicles which are your ear bones they're very small um things like that are gonna be hard to find although i've heard sometimes if you're washing a skull you can like the ear bones will fall out right into your oh, right into really? your hand yeah oh, that's interesting. so it, it really depends but mm-hmm. that's the first thing the person will do next they might want to look at the sex of the individual yeah so um I think we, I briefly mentioned, but there's four things you look at, um, or I guess four main things, which would be sex, age, ancestry, and height. Stature. Stature, yeah, yeah. Um, which is like height. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll start with sex. Um, so sex is really important because it helps, um, especially in a forensic case, it would help narrow down the pool of possible possible people um, that it could be um, if you're trying to identify an individual. Um, and I will just state first the difference between sex and gender. So um, sex is you know, the biological identity, um, and gender is the social expression. So they're not the same thing. Um, so we're not looking for gender here. Um, we're looking at sex. Mm -hmm. Um, so compared to other animals, humans are less sexually dimorphic. So, um, that, what that means is they're a lot of times harder to differentiate yeah um, between um males and females yeah like if you look at like you know those like birds that like the male is like brightly colored and everything and like the females like drab that's like that's what you would call like extensive sexual dimorphism mm-hmm. which is a huge difference between the males and the females we don't have a whole lot of difference no we do not so sexual variation for humans is it's on a continuum so um there can be extremes but there's so much overlap um um, that it's hard to tell males do tend to be um larger than females um so more robust um their bones um and their muscle attachments as well when you're looking at um their bones um they have thicker and denser cortical bone and then um like longer bone lengths in general Mm -hmm. so that's one thing um and like the opposite to robust would be like gracile. So that's what we'd usually call females, biological females, more gracile. So a little more um, less defined features. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So there are a few different features that we look at for when we uh, sex a skeleton. And the most helpful thing that you can have to sex a skeleton is the oscoxa, which is um, your pelvic bone. So you have two halves of your pelvic bone, and you can use a method called the Fennus method, which has a 96% accuracy rate, and you can look at different features on it to see if they resemble more male or female. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, the other bone that's really helpful for sexing, um, not as reliable as the pelvis, but uh, you can look at the cranium. Mm-hmm. So the cranium... Um 
it really depends. It has like I think it's at eighty to ninety percent yeah. accuracy, so not as reliable as the Venice method. Um, and it also is biased towards males, just because um, using this method, you look at a database. Um, um, so it's like population. You're looking at comparisons, um, and the the collections have more male samples. Mm-hmm. So it is a little bit biased. And as people age as well, like females as they age, their bones can become more like male-like, mm-hmm. um, just based on muscles and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So um, there are actually a few different features that you can kind of feel out yourself um, for sexing a skeleton. So one of my favorites is the nuchal crest. So um, for people out there that wear headbands, um, for biological females, it tends to like maybe slip off more. And that's because females don't have a super pronounced nuchal crest. So if you take your like index finger and you point at the or at the back of your head and you feel kind of like a bump between your ears at the back of your head, that's a nuchal crest. And for biological males, it's going to be more prominent. There's also the brow ridge or the glabella, which is more prominent in males. Something called the mastoid process, mm-hmm. which is kind of like in... Like, like below, behind your ear? Yeah, behind, like, below around the ear, the top of the mandible, like, chin. I guess it depends where you consider your chin to end, but <laughs> um, you can't really feel that, but that's, like, um, it has more volume in males. So there are things like that mm-hmm. that we can use to sex a skeleton. So after we sex a skeleton, um, we actually use our estimated sex, and we never say determine the sex of a skeleton mm-hmm. because we can't determine we're estimating because um there are various factors that might go into um a skeleton looking more male or female for example it might be a more gracile population in general which may make it look more female so we actually rank them on a scale of one to five where three is ambiguous and um we kind of see where they fall but we use that sex estimation to estimate age so age estimation um, is another big part of biological profiles. Um, first, there's a few different, I guess, definitions of age. So you have chronological age, um, which is the number of years someone has been alive. You have your biological age, um, which would be your, your like physiological age. Um, and that's what we can estimate skeletally. So um, how it appears that your skeleton looks, what age it looks. So some older individuals um, can look younger and some young younger individuals can look older. Um, and it kind of varies based on um, a multitude of factors like genetics, nutrition, environment, activity. Um, so there's all these different factors that, that come into play, um, especially when it's differ- differentiating between your biological age um, and your chronological age. Yeah, absolutely. So when we're looking at biological age, there are a few different things we're looking at. We're looking at um, developmental features for younger people, and we're looking at degenerative features for older people. So when we're looking at younger people, um, a lot of it is development. So a really good way to age people or age skeletons development-wise is by their teeth. So um, when you're Uh, in utero your teeth are actually already developing and you've got teeth in like little crypts and then once uh, you have your deciduous or milk teeth which are your baby teeth they start to come out and your adult teeth are already kind of forming in the crypts they form from the crown down to the root and they start um, forming ready to come 
So with an x-ray, we can see uh, which teeth are have already erupted, which teeth are forming, and which teeth are um, start, starting to get ready to ready to make their appearance. Mm-hmm. Which is super important, um, and it's why for juveniles and sub-adults there can be pretty accurate age estimations yeah um, because we do know um, kind of the stages of um, dental formation and eruption Mm -hmm. yeah you can use there are a few different ways but a very common way is using a chart and literally just looking at that x-ray and seeing how it compares to the chart Mm -hmm. because development is fairly um, you can age it fairly um, closely for a subadult because they um, they develop so fast so like eight months versus 12 months might look quite different Mm-hmm. Another method um, that's used for um, subadult age estimation is the fusion of epiphyses. Um, so these are the ends of um, your bones, uh, ends of long bones, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so by looking at, and it's useful, um, I think it can be useful up until around 30 years old, um, if I'm Yeah, correct. so it, um, it depends on the... Uh, epiphysis you're looking at it's usually a little maybe a little younger than 30 but like early to mid 20s mm-hmm. yeah um so that is a really good way of indicating age as well um again looking at the sequence of development and fusion so um when these epiphyses so the ends of your bones um are fusing to your bone um so that's a really good way to look at it yeah like when you hear like oh children have hundred more bones than adults what you're really looking at is they don't have fused bones so all the little caps on the ends of their bones aren't fused Mm -hmm. so um each one fuses at different ages and this can actually vary between male and female because um, females tend to uh, reach puberty earlier than males Mm -hmm. Um, so that's where the sex estimation helps Um, but yeah you can look at the epiphyseal fusion and when you're looking at that, um, you're going to look at which bone um, you're going to compare it to which bone you're looking at. So if I have a an unfused femur, if I have, a, say, there's an epiphysis called the greater trochanter and it's unfused, I'm going to say, OK, well, this individual, um, the greater, greater trochanter fuses around between this age and this age. So for it to be unfused, this individual has to be younger than this. And you can start narrowing it in Mm -hmm. that way. And you can get a pretty accurate um, age range using this method. Yeah. And then another method used um, to age um, subadults is just simply the long bone length. Um, So again, as you grow um, and as you age, the length of your your stature is it's larger so that's just a really simple way um, yeah of looking at it that's not necessarily as reliable as a way though because mm-hmm, um not. things like uh nutrition can affect that mm-hmm. whereas um teeth and dental eruption are very they they go on schedule regardless as to what's happening <laughs> so um yeah it's teeth are a really good thing to look at um but depending on what you have like if you don't have a skull like with the maxilla and mandible or teeth then you might want to look at one of those other methods Mm -hmm. um and then so so we've been talking about all those eight those methods have been looking at um sub-adults or juveniles um all adult age estimation is actually um quite 
I would say harder. Um, just because your yeah. epiphyses are fused, your teeth are fully erupted. Um, so it's easy to, you know, under, underestimate the age or overestimate the age. Um, and as you age older adults as well, the, the range is a lot larger. Um, so it's harder to narrow down um, specific ages. Absolutely. So we're going to, for adult age estimation, we're going to go back to our friend, the pelvis. Um, <laughs> and we're going to look at a feature called the auricular surface, which is kind of like a crescent moon shaped uh, indent where your sacrum which is the bottom of your spine and meets your tailbone, where um, that uh, hits your pelvis. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you look at that, when you're young, it's going to look like really full and billowy. So by billowy, I mean like, you know, those like fields that have been nicely plowed and they're like up and down. And like billow. <laughs> That's the best way I can describe billowy, but it's going to look nice and like that. Um, and then it's going to get more like granular mm -hmm. um, and sandy in appearance and then it's going to get flatter um, and the billows are kind of going to kind of disappear so um, I think it's uh, past 50 years old yeah. yeah so it gets hard exactly yeah it gets harder to age past a certain amount because it doesn't degenerate past that mm -hmm. so oftentimes if it's like an older individual we might be like oh this person was older than this but like we don't necessarily know mm -hmm. where. It is a good advantage of this method, though, is um, usually the auricular surface is well-preserved mm -hmm. um, when you find skeletal remains. And also, you don't need to know sex yeah. um, using this method. Yeah, that's a really helpful one. Mm -hmm. um, there are a few other methods as well. Mm -hmm. um, There's sternal rib end, yeah. um, which is just looking at um, one of the ends of your ribs um, and... Just based I think on it's the, the fourth rib, right? Yeah, yeah. the fourth rib. Um, you can kind of try and look at other or sternal ends, but the fourth is the best one, and um, basically based on the shape um, and the porosity of it, mm -hmm. which is kind of just how it, um, how the lines have deepened, how it's holy. Um, that can tell you um, an, an age range. Again, yeah. it's a wide age range, and that would be for your fourth rib, where. In the front of your body where your rib meets your chest bone, your mm -hmm. sternum. So the sternum, yeah, right in the middle there. Mm -hmm. And um, there's also the pubic symphysis, um, which is right uh, at the front of your pelvis where your two pieces of your pelvis meet. Mm -hmm. um, and that also will get less billowed and more flat and kind of more like rolled out Play-Doh instead of billowy play-doh <laughs> it's hard it's hard it's very hard to describe this without a picture um so i hope that you're 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 getting this but mm -hmm. um there's also stuff like dental attrition but that is a really iffy one mm -hmm. so dental attrition is how your teeth wear away so if you have like a 25 year old they're probably gonna have their teeth way less worn than somebody who's 70 but the thing about dental attrition is it varies widely depending on diet. So if you're in a society at some place in time that eats a lot of like grains, corns that are really like granular and um, affect your um, teeth and they really wear on your teeth, then you might have more worn teeth when you're younger. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. So Should we move on to Yeah, let's do it. Ancestry. ancestry. Um, so ancestry is a little bit of a iffy one, 
I would say. Yeah, yeah. definitely. It's definitely, um, especially in if you kind of look back to like its origins, so the history of human classification, um, it has very racist beginnings. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you look back at um, something like anthropometry, which is measurements of the human body, um, you know, there's a lot of... Um, they used to try and kind of measure like cranial size um, and correlate that with um, race um, mm-hmm. and, and intelligence and intelligence yeah which is problematic very problematic very incorrect um, and you know and even our classifications today um, for ancestry kind of still come from like this these racial categories mm-hmm. that were created and you know like, yeah um, you know created in like the 1800s, which were um, these these divides that were all wrong. Um, mm-hmm. so there's definitely a lot of problems with this. Um, and another problem with kind of determining ancestry is um, a lot of times in a forensic context, um, police enforcement are looking for like, like a, a skin a color. Skin color. Yeah. yeah, they want they want something. Um, they want information to help them find an individual. Um, yeah, so they're looking for. Um, this was like a 40-year-old white woman, mm-hmm. like that kind of thing. But the bones cannot tell you mm-hmm. what skin color was. No. What we can look at is we can look at broad categories. So we can look at broadly European, mm-hmm. um, African, and uh, Asian. Asian yeah. And Asian includes um, North American indigenous people as well. Mm-hmm. So there are different... Um, different things we can look at we can look at morphological features which are more of like shape and we can also look at metric features which are more of measurements um for example in terms of teeth there's the carabelli's cusp which is an extra little bulge on your one of your molars and that's common in european populations Mm -hmm. um for metrics we might look at like interorbital breadth so how far apart your eye holes are (laughs) um nasal aperture sealing so um, your nose, how pointy the underbone of your nose is, mm-hmm. things like that. And they're just traits that are, you know, common um, or more common um, for a certain population. Mm-hmm. So because uh, ancestry is so broad and is just based on a lot of features, we're going to move on to stature. Mm-hmm. So stature is trying to find out how tall somebody would have been in life. So there are different ways. You can, of course, take the full skeleton if you have it and just measure the whole thing and add add them up and add a correction factor for soft tissue. That is seldom used. What we usually use is we use a long bone. The femur is a really nice one to use. And we will measure it and we will plug it into what's called a regression equation. And it will tell us likely how tall this person was based on their... Uh, femur or other long bone. Now the problem with this is they're usually based off of um, things like uh, I know there's one collection that regression uh, is based off of that were uh, Vietnam War uh, veterans, both Vietnamese and American. So we don't necessarily, if somebody is in a um, ancestral category that we don't have an equation for that's going to be problematic mm-hmm. definitely yeah yeah so um that's one thing i know in one of our one of our 
one of my classes before, um, we tried to do regression based on our ulna. So we tried to measure our own ulna in our own arm. But there were a lot of people in the class that they there was no equation that fit them. Mm-hmm. There's um, no, you know, yeah. standards are not available for all populations. And um, so it's really difficult to um, use these regression formulas that are made so specifically for a certain um, ancestral group or mm-hmm. even um, sex group. I believe, if I remember correctly, a lot of them yep. were for males only. Yeah, that is very true. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of problems with just biological profile stuff in general. Mm -hmm. Like some of the stuff we can't even do for specific populations, like sexing, we don't even usually touch sexing for subadults. We don't really have a reliable way to do that. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And then the other thing, which I find maybe the most interesting uh, that you can do in a biological profile is you can look for individual variation and pathology. Mm -hmm. So individual variation is something... Um, that is concerned with a normal variation. So there are different characteristics that an individual might have that is a little different than the norm, but is um, still within normal variation. Mm -hmm. So a slightly common one is a bifid rib. So it's kind of like your rib goes out into two little fingers instead of just going into one straight line. Um, That's an example of individual variation. Yeah. Um, And even I believe individual variation can be other skeletal anomalies, like um, I think the paranasal sinus shape. Yep. Um, so which is one yep. of them? Yeah. Um, so it's when like the your nasal cavity has um, four air filled spaces, I believe. I think so. Yeah. So um, that can give us a lot of information, and it's also um, perhaps like as unique as something like a fingerprint. Mm-hmm. which is really interesting. And we can, in a forensic case, for example, if somebody has um, x-rays that were taken during life that may show some of this variation, like a bifid rib or um, the sinus cavities, um, or I'm trying to think of other variation. Um, there's even like variation that's human-caused. Yeah, like, so if someone had, for example, um, had knee surgery and had like a metal plate, Mm-hmm. put into their knee um if that's found um archaeologically then they can kind of maybe like see that serial number or compare um, doctor records hospital records and try and place that individual yeah so there are a bunch of things that make people very individual that we can see in skeletons or in alterations to skeletons like if you smoked a pipe a lot of times you have a pipe facet which mm-hmm. is a little hole a little pipe shaped hole between your teeth where your pipe just fits right nicely in um (laughs) so that's one thing that's looked for because that might be the one thing then um especially in forensic cases that an anthropologist can go oh yes this was this is consistent with this individual they had a bifid rib this person that we found has a bifid rib Mm -hmm. this is consistent and there's also pathology, which uh, we talked about a bit about trauma pathology last week. But pathology could be anything from, um, like, did the individual have, like, tertiary syphilis? Mm-hmm. Um, or scurvy is another one that expresses in mm-hmm. bones. Any or, condition that um, can show up on bones that can tell us about that individual. Yeah. And even different congenital conditions like spina bifida. Mm-hmm. That's um, a big one. Paget's disease, which yep. would cause, you know, little holes or porosities. Yeah, and thickening know. of some of the bones, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, 
there are there's lots that you can do with an osteobiography there's a lot a lot a lot that you can learn and you can really start to illuminate um a lot about the individual's life and sometimes their lived experiences as well when you look at different like trauma that may have affected them for example mm-hmm. yeah and like we said um they're super beneficial um to modern cases, to forensic cases, um, when you're trying to look for the for the um, identity of someone or um, some way of identifying them. Um, but then there's also a lot of problems with them as well. Um, and there's a lot of issues with, um, you know, trying to provide this information to, um, to the police or to um, outside parties who may not understand exactly um, the estimate that you're giving them. Absolutely. A lot of it is just scientific translation, translating what we know from our terms into terms that might be um, acceptable for a group that has a stake in the individual. So with that, we're going to do our non-human listener (laughs) shout out of the week. (laughs) Shout out to Finnegan, my aunt's dog. He is a lovely beaver and he is just a ball of joy. Hello, Finnegan. Hi, Finnegan. (laughs) And with that, we're off and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye, guys.